Hi and welcome to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life. I'm Ren Levy. About two years ago, we did a listener's survey in which we asked for your feedback on the podcast. Those who participated in the survey received a bonus episode, an interview with Chris Weisopel, a.k.a. Weldpond, one of Loft's founding members. When we started working on the two Loft episodes we released two weeks ago, I recalled a few stories that Chris told me in that interview that tie in very well with the two other episodes. One story about their accidental trespassing into the NSA headquarters in Maryland, and the other about how things went down after Loft was sold to At Stake, an upstart and very much mainstream cybersecurity company. Also in the interview, were the Loft guys really able to shut down the entire internet in only 30 minutes, as they said in their testimony in the Senate? Did they use shaming to force corporations to comply with their demands? And why was Space Rogue forced out of at stake? All this and more in the following conversation. Since the interview was recorded two years ago, you'll probably notice the difference in sound quality from our current setup. But that shouldn't be an issue. Enjoy the interview. Today we have Chris Weisopel, a.k.a. Wellpond. Chris is a computer security expert who was instrumental in developing industry guidelines for responsible disclosure of software vulnerabilities. He was a member of the Loft Hacker Think Tank, co-founded Veracode, which provides automated cloud-based security services, and named one of the 100 most influential people in IT by the eWeek magazine. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Uh, great to have you uh, on the phone with us. And today we're going to talk about uh, both your experience in Loft and uh, your ideas about software vulnerabilities. So let's start with Loft. So tell us, how did Loft begin and what it was actually? Loft began uh, when a couple of guys... Um, They went by Brian Oblivion and, 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 and Count Zero. They, they actually lived in the same building in the south end of Boston, and uh, they were friends, and their wives were friends. And their wives started this small hat-making business and rented a, a loft space to use for you know, their hat production. And uh, they ended up not needing to use all the space. They only ended up use, needing to use half. So they said... Well, you guys have all this computer junk, uh, you know, cluttering up our homes, our apartments. You know, they were in small apartments, and they had a lot of computer junk. And they said, can you just move that into the other side of our hat-making area, and, and we'll, uh, you know, you guys can share the rent and with us. I mean, they were already paying the rent, right, because they were married. Mm-hmm. And so they put desks in there. They set up their computers, and then they started having friends come over and hang out, and... It just turned into, well, why don't we have some other people join us and bring, put up a desk and bring their computers over, and uh, we can share hardware, we can share manuals. And so it just sort of started organically once, once they had a space. Um, I ran into Brian Oblivion online. Uh, he, had a, he had a bulletin board 
Um, and remember, this is pre pre commercial internet days, so that you, you couldn't have you couldn't really have a commercial website. This was like uh, 91, 92. And uh, I met him on a BBS, and uh, we sort of became friends online. And he invited me to come and check out the loft and hang out. And um, I got along with everybody and decided, hey, this would be great. Why don't I? Why don't I join in and, and share the space here? So it was really kind of uh, one of the very first hacker spaces where people were sharing equipment and manuals and, and know-how. So you were uh, hacking systems, finding vulnerabilities, mostly, I think, in Microsoft's uh, products, right? Windows, et cetera? Yeah, so... Um So once we sort of had the, you know, sort of the resources, you know, hooking up a network, having extra machines to load software on and, and, and test, um, it gave us the, the idea that we would sort of build our own, you know, software security testing lab. Um, and we also did the same thing for hardware. There were a couple of the loft guys, Brian and, and Kingpin, you know, they had some hardware workbenches, hardware test equipment, and they would do things like, you know, take apart cell phones and desolder chips and look at firmware. And on the software side, we had our lab where we had networks set up and we could set up, uh, you know, Windows machines talking to each other and we could set up a Linux machine, start sniffing traffic and, and try to understand how it's working. So, it, you know, after it took a year or two um, from those early days, but then we started thinking, hey, this is this is what we should do. We should, you know, in, do security research. And so we didn't even call it vulnerability research back then. It was just hacking, right? So <laughs> we were just hackers hacking away on software and hardware and publishing our results. That sounds almighty fun <laughs> for, my, for my taste. So let's talk about your attitude back then towards vulnerability disclosure, what we call now vulnerability disclosure. The Washington, uh, sorry, the Washington Post said in an article from 2015, and I quote, the group took particular relish in trying to shame big companies such as Microsoft for selling products with security flaws to unsuspecting customers. Is that correct? That, was that your attitude, shaming Yeah, yeah, it was. It was, and you have to remember, you know, it was it was a different time back then. Um, uh, you know, large vendors were largely unresponsive to people reporting vulnerabilities to them. They um, they thought we were just a nuisance, and uh, that uh, you know we were we were the ones harming their customers. Their their attitude was, um, you know. By disclosing vulnerabilities, by talking about, uh, you know, how to hack, uh, you know, a, a Microsoft system, by putting out a tool that hacks it, we were the ones putting their customers at risk, right? Um, and so that was, that was their attitude back then. So because of that attitude, we had to say, okay, well, if you don't, you know, you, you don't care about security at all, then you won't care if, you know, we, we let people know that, you know, You aren't building secure software, right? We're, we're just going to let everyone know that you have no process for building secure software. You don't care when we report vulnerabilities. Um, you, you, you don't you, you're not interested in working with, uh, with with hackers. So that was that was the backdrop for us essentially saying, well, we're basically going to have to shame them into coming around and saying, you know what guys? We don't know how to build secure software. We've been shipping software without building it securely for many years. And guess what? We're going to start building it securely. And that's what we wanted to happen. And that's what eventually happened. But, be, be, but before vendors sort of admitted they didn't know how to build secure software or were trying, um, that, that, 
you know, you, you had to you had to sort of shame them into realizing that. <laughs> and many years later, uh, you moved from being a developer and a hacker uh, to the IT field, and, and you said back in 2017 in an interview to RSA that you did made that move partly to learn how it feels to be, uh, so to speak, in the trenches of software development. Do you think that, I mean, looking back, uh, say if you were in charge of uh, security in Microsoft, for example, during that time, being a business that is in constant growth and it's kind of a tr- critical business junction, do you think you could have maybe m- done a better job at disclosing vulnerabilities and you know putting, putting emphasis on security? Or, you know, in retrospect... Was it too much to expect from uh, Microsoft uh, from in that period of time? Yeah, so um, I think I, I guess I don't I, uh, you know I, I don't expect them to have made you know a great secure product, but I, I also wouldn't want them to be marketing it as a secure product. So I think I think the problem is the disconnect where companies, market them things as secure. I, I remember a big thing where Microsoft was saying, well, Microsoft is secure. It doesn't have all those Linux vulnerabilities. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a non sequitur. It doesn't make any sense. Like just because you're, you know, you're a different operating system and of course you can't exploit the exact same vulnerabilities doesn't make you secure. But that was kind of the marketing back then. It was like switch to Windows. We, we don't have all the, we, re, we rewrote all, all the uh, um, things like DNS and, and 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 the mail mail uh, mail server, and 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 we're secure. So it wasn't necessarily that they, um, I would people were saying, um, uh, you know, we expected them to be secure. Um, it was more we expected them not to market their products as secure. So that's where we say things like the emperor has no clothes, right? Like they're parading around like they're secure, but but they're not. And I think that that's the disconnect that really riled us up. It made because uh, like end users were the ones saying like, oh, I'm fine. I can I can I can do certain things with my computer and I'm taken care of by my software vendors. I won't be attacked. So if they were upfront and honest about what they're doing for security, which was very little, um, I don't think anyone would have had a problem. It, it's, it's really the disconnect between the walk and the talk. Yeah, I think that um, uh, any of our listeners who was uh, interested in security back then maybe remembers Microsoft uh, Conduct back then, which was rather monopolistic and uh, very aggressive, uh, much more so than it is now, I think. So what you're saying is kind of, kind of makes sense from my memory. Um, so talking about uh, software security, you wrote an article for CSO Online, and you said, and I quoting here from the article, software developers and security teams will not just influence, but, but responsibility for software security, which means, if I understand correctly, that software security is not just a technical concern, but also a moral one. Does that mean that businesses should make security their first priority, even if it hurts their business? Isn't the point of a business to make money? Well, I, you know, I think if you look at an analogy... Um, around, uh, you know, safety, um, you wouldn't want a company that's making money that's selling products that's like harming people to sort of be able to get away with that, right? Like, mm-hmm. like we have, we have, you know, product liability around physical things, 
And so companies do the right thing in their business because if they don't, they'll get sued and they'll, lo- and they'll lose money, right? So I think when you talk about like safety issues, um, because we have liability, companies do the ethical thing, the right thing, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's perhaps not because they think it's the ethical thing to do. It's because they don't want to get sued, right? Yeah, they um, have to. And they, they sort of have to. But here we have a place where, 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 where companies are able to disclaim liability. They're able to, you know, um, tell you that, you know, they're protecting your data. But then when they don't protect your data, there's no consequences, right? Um, and, and, and so if it's, not, if it's not regulated data like financial data or healthcare data, if it's your, you know, it's your dating profile, um, it's, it's personal information that you don't want the whole world to see necessarily as you, but if they lose it, there's really no, there's no downside. So I, and I think that you know, companies over time are beginning, some companies are beginning to understand that you know, when, when, uh, when they breach the customer's trust, it, it, you know, it tarnishes their brand. Um, and we, we actually did a study here at CA recently on digital trust and found that there's a correlation between people who have high trust of the software and vendors they use and spending more money um, online, sort of in that digital channel, and customers that have had bad experiences online and uh, don't have much trust of online providers spending less money. So there's definitely a correlation um, that was significant that we saw. So, again, I think that you know, doing the right thing, you know, the, the ethical right thing um, is also the right thing to do, you know, for, for, for business. Um, and, you know, it's kind of sad that, you know, it, it has to be that way. But I, I think you're right. It is in a business's interest to make money. But I think it's also in the business interest to do what's right by their customers and protect, you know, protect their data. So back uh, to 1998, and in May of 1998, there was a very, very famous uh, testimony before the Congress, uh, you and uh, six other LOFT uh, members, uh, the first ever congressional cybersecurity hearing. Uh, and back then, I don't remember which one of you said that. He said that you are, you guys are able to shut down the Internet in 30 minutes. <laughs> Were you able to, or was he just uh, <laughs> giving, uh, you know, giving the senators ideas? <laughs> so, uh, so that was Mudge at the time, and Mudge was the one who was doing um, a lot of the sort of internet scale networking research, um, looking at uh, things like BGP, the Border Gateway Protocol, which is, you know, a critical piece of the internet. It just wouldn't work without that. That's how routers know um, where to send packets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when 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 you have uh, autonomous networks connecting to each other, like different network providers, or a network provider to a backbone provider, and uh, and 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 really the attack was about um, spoofing BGP packets um, because it was unauthenticated. It was it was uh, it was a UDP protocol. Um, spoofing these packets and and misrouting um, information so that the routers don't know where, where to send information. So it was something where um, by doing this very in, in, in key locations pretty quickly, um, you would disconnect the internet um, because packets couldn't be routed from one place to another, uh, and you'd get you'd get a cascading 
you know, uh, fit failure. Um, and so, uh, and, 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 and so we figured like we could do that in about 30 minutes. We could get it to that point. Um, we didn't say like it would be permanently down. We think that people could manually reload the routes and then ignore, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> the uh, messages. Yeah. Ignore those messages and, and, you know, and, and kind of the internet would hobble along until they could kind of figure it out. I mean, right now there's BGP attacks all the time, but people aren't trying to take down the whole internet they're just trying to route some traffic by them so that they can look at that traffic or they they're just misdirecting one particular you know network or one particular typically just one network um, and these attacks happen all the time there's even a, a twitter account that you can watch watch when bgp um, routes get changed um, and uh, basically what happens is it gets detected after you know, an hour, a few hours, and then, you know, whatever network that came from, you know, if they do it enough, it gets it gets banned and no one will connect to them. And that's sort of how the Internet is dealing with it um, right now. But if someone did try in lots of places to disconnect a lot of networks, I think it still, it still would cause massive problems. Yeah, it's very interesting to, to see that even 10 years after the Morris Worm, which was back in 1988, uh, Still, uh, you know, one determined guy could topple a huge part of the internet by, uh, doing malicious stuff that nobody, I guess, thought about when they built the protocols. Very interesting. Uh, tell me about one incident that I read about in the same Washington Post, uh, in, I think the same Washington Post article in which you guys on the way to Washington DC, on the way to, to the testimony in front of the Congress, uh, met uh, the NSA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you know, we when we went down there, um, we we there was seven of us, so we couldn't you know we couldn't fit in a in in, in a car. So we we rented a um, I think it was a fourteen passenger van um, to drive down, and uh, and uh, you know it ended up being something. It was like a Dodge Ram. It, it looked like a military vehicle because it was dark green with uh, with uh, tint, dark tinted uh, windows. And uh, you know we're like, oh, this is cool. This is a cool looking van. And uh, on the way down, we said, well, let's uh, you know we'll, we'll hack on the way down. Like we'll do some wireless um, you know reconnaissance. We'll set up a network in the van. We'll have fun. So you know we had a big UPS. We had, you know, power. We had machines there. Um, and uh, we had a bunch of antennas on the roof and scanners and um, radios um, to uh, re- receive signals. And so the, the roof kind of, it, it ended up kind of looking like a surveillance vehicle, right, uh, with the antennas <laughs> and all the computers in it. And um, we uh, were driving down the highway in Maryland and... Uh, we came up with the idea, let's go to the uh, NSA Cryptologic Museum. And I heard we heard that they had an Enigma machine there and uh, that, uh, you know, we wanted to see what the you know NSA had on display in their museum, their public museum. And so uh, we looked at the directions. We kind of understood where the exit was. And then um, as we were uh, going down the highway and we're looking for the right exit, um, you know, the drive, no one was really paying attention to what the driver was doing. And, uh, I, I can't, I think, um, it was, uh, it was space rogue who was driving, who at the time, 
you know, he's he was ex-military, so he's got he's got his buzz cut. You know, he 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 looks the part of ex-military, and um, he took the wrong exit. He took the NSA employee only um, exit, which they have right off the highway, which goes directly into the NSA headquarters. If you're a defender fighting cyber attackers, you must be successful every time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. End cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. And uh, he took that exit and he came to a gate and there was two guards on either side of the gate um, holding automatic weapons and, uh, you know, dressed in fatigues. And uh, the gate was open, right? The, the gate was up. Um, I guess they were letting a lot of cars through, and, it, and and they weren't checking each car. And they saw the they saw our van, and it just looked like the right. It looked like uh you know, and it looked like a military vehicle. So we just drove right through the gate. Um, and once we got through the gate, everyone else in the van looked perked up because we're like, wait a minute, we just drove by two guys with automatic weapons. We just drove through a gate with barbed wire. This can't be the public museum. This doesn't make any sense. And we started looking around and we said, oh, no, we're in the employee parking lot and we could just walk over to the building now. Um, And so we quickly said, all right, we just have to leave. There's really no alternative to this. Drive around the parking lot and and, and leave. (laughs) Um, So we did that as quickly as possible because we figured if we got detained, who knew how long it was going to take to explain the situation? (laughs) Yeah, it will be pretty hard, I think, to to explain why there are so many antennas on the roof. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, uh, what are you seven guys doing? Oh, we're hackers. You know, it's it's just not going to go well. Uh, that's a great story. <laughs> that's a fantastic story. So, um, in 2000, you sold uh, Loft to a company called At Stake. Uh, what happened then? Yeah, so, um, sort of in the late, you know, like 99 period, um, we had started um, doing, uh, you know, we were selling Loft Crack um, as software. Um, we were doing some consulting, writing um, IDS, um, IDS rules and, and filters for a company called NFR, um, and we were doing manual pen test consulting, and we were basically using our you know, hacker skills to do security, and uh, we said, you know, I think you could make a company out of this, right? Like, we could, we could, uh, we, we could be more formal about being a company, um, and we could do you know, we could have security services, we could write software, and uh, we started exploring, you know, how would we do that? None of us had started a business before. Uh, We were all really technical people, Um, but we did incorporate. uh, We incorporated as uh, LHI Technologies. We were a Massachusetts corporation, Um, and because we were taking money in, right? So you figure you got to pay taxes, right? Or, or they'll, 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 come, they'll come find you if you're making money. That's the point um, so, of uh, incorporating, so, basically. <laughs> yeah, so we, so we did that, and uh, you know, we, we paid our taxes and whatever, and we said, you know, uh, how are we going to you know, e- expand this? You know, are we going to get investment? So we wrote a business plan. We started talking to VCs, um, and it became pretty clear that you know, none of us had the skills really to be a C- CEO, uh, we were going to have to hire a business team, a CEO, a CFO. Um, we, we were going to have to hire those people, and we weren't quite sure how to do that. 
and the VCs basically said, you know, there's this company that one of the VCs we ran into said, well, this is a company that we're backing called uh, called At Stake, and they're just a bunch of, you know, ex-consultants, and we've started to build a, a business, a management team. Why don't, instead of in, us investing in you, why don't we, why don't you, um, why don't we buy the loft and make it the R&D um, team of of at stake and you know we'll give you shares in the company uh we'll give you some cash and come on board and 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 we're like okay well that's good but let's you know what's the company going to do what are our roles going to be we want to keep being the loft um and uh so I, i think what happened was we came aboard and it was really kind of impossible to keep being exactly what the loft was right when you when you sort of have the the profit motive as in, you know, we have to grow the business um, over time. And uh, so so at the time, we, I think we were a little bit naive to think that things wouldn't change um, as much as they did um, becoming part of At Stake. And then so over time, it changed more for some people than, than other people. But um, that that's sort of what broke up the loft was, you know, some people started to leave At Stake and we couldn't really be the loft anymore. And did the personal connections between the team members, did they suffer as well? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, one of, one of the, you know, sort of worst first incidents was, um, you know, Space Rogue essentially got laid off because they said, you know, we don't want to do Hacker News anymore. Um, we, we don't want to do the, these types of things. Um, you know, we don't see how that's going to make any money. We're going to shut this down and, you know, okay, well, we can't, we can't afford to pay your, your salary because, you know, the, the job you're doing has, has been eliminated. And, and then we, we start, need to explain you know, to the listeners that you had Hackers News Network website back then. News yeah, Network. yeah. So back then it was really the first, um, you know, one of the very first blogs actually where, um, Space, we, we would just basically post news stories and commentary um, on those news stories um, every, every day. So um, every day, you know, if, if a website got defaced or, um, you know, there was a breach um, or, you know, some hacker got arrested, mm-hmm. um, it was basically all the, th- all the kind of news that, you know, hackers would be, be interested in. And so we called it Hacker News Network, and um, it was got, basically, got you know, shut one down. of the sites. And it, it, it and, and and you know it was a little too edgy, <laughs> and they didn't you know at stake didn't see the value um, in it, so it did get shut down. Uh, and Space Rogue, I understand, took it personally that he was laid off. Yes. So um, yeah, that was that was that was sort of I guess the 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 beginning of the downward the downward um, sp- spiral. Like you know this next thing that happened was. You know the dot com bust happened, and um, you know business wasn't wasn't as good as we thought it would be. you know you you hire too many people, and you know the next problem that happened with us was why are we doing this hardware research? Why are we doing hardware security research? No one was doing this back then. I mean, Brian and Kingpin were so far ahead of how other people were thinking, like everyone for the last ten years has been doing hardware research, but this was even like eight years before that um And, uh, you know, again, they said, well, let's shut down the, the hardware research uh, part of the business. So um, 
that that's when you know more more of loft got disintegrated so um that that's when you know it started to really kind of become very clear that this wasn't a place where you could you know if you wanted to be you know do what the loft was doing it, it wasn't going to happen anymore and um you were quoted in an article saying that back then the community thought that uh by working with uh, at stake you were kind of selling to the man so to speak yeah yeah so i guess it was you know there there was an attitude where you know why would you work for you know the big banks and help them be secure why would you work for software vendors like microsoft and help them be secure right like there's There's that uh, you know rebel uh, rebel underground right within the hacker community which is you know don't don't help out you know sort of our corporate mm-hmm. oppressors right um, you know that rebellious streak that pervades a, a, a lot of communities um, you know rock and roll and punk music and all those kinds of things um, and uh, um, you know there's there's there was that faction of the community which was you just not was going to reject hackers working for corporations um, and uh, but then there was another part and this was the site that we were on which is like you know what we want to actually help society right like yeah, if my point <laughs> yeah if Microsoft is selling software that's harming people and we can force them to start taking security seriously we're, we're helping you know we're helping society we're helping build an internet community that can be trusted and Um, so that was the side that uh, we were on and you know you, you sort of had to work work you know work help the man if you were going to do that <laughs> so that's the side you know we ended up taking um, so uh, moving uh, forward to the present and uh, how uh, vulnerabilities are disclosed today uh, there was an incident a fa- rather famous incident too in the past two years uh, there's a company called uh, M spy which makes a uh, spyware for mobile devices and it got hacked twice in three years and lost millions of records of its customers and you tweeted in response how many failures before <clears throat> sorry how many failures before the FTC steps in I took it as kind of a call for government intervention and In maybe software security and vulnerability disclosure responsibility do you really think that the government should uh, take part in regulating software security well so so what I was referring to especially with you know referring to the FTC is if you know if someone is selling a service or a product and and, and making making any kind of claims around security then you Um, you know that's that's unfair you know unfair trade if, if you're, you're you're making these claims and you're 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 not you know following through or there's just a baseline expectation that there's a certain level of privacy or protection and and, and you're not you know you're not you're not delivering it and and this has happened before um, this happened with uh, asus routers where um, home routers where they you know they basically weren't um, you know they knew their product was insecure and they just weren't making patches available um, and the FC FTC investigated and, and find um, find them and then put them under a consent decree which essentially says like you need to have third-party you know security tests and you have to show us the results and that that goes on for a period of, of 10 years and um, 
they did this with, um, I believe it was the uh, Wyndham Hotel chain, where um, basically they had no security program. They weren't protecting customers' data at all. Um, and uh, they, they, they found that that was just, it was basically deceptive to, like, not protect your customers' data at all. Um, so there's been cases where um, it's under the, on the auspices of, you know, it's really misleading um, to be so flagrantly insecure where there's some expectation by, by customers. And, and we've seen this with these spyware um, companies where um, there's been many breaches, and I, I just have to believe that, that they're not really paying attention to security at all. Um, and they, and, they're, and they're, you know, they're, they have very sensitive data, right? It's, it's spying on someone. It's got all their private conversations and what websites they went to and things like that, mm-hmm. and they're recording all that data. And they're just not protecting it properly. So I think when it's really in a, any sort of an egregious situation, um, then um, then then bodies like the Federal Trade Commission should come in and say, you know, this is this is just un- unacceptable. You're you're selling a service here, and 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 and, and it's misleading. But so there will be people who will say that the government is incapable of of, of moving that fast and. Uh, they are they are not as knowledgeable in these matters as they should maybe they can't do what what you hope for them to do so so yeah so in these FTC cases usually the problem persists for a couple years um, and then it takes them a couple years of investigation to bring charges and 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 then probably like at least a year to to you know to, to for it to go to court Um So the, this is very slow, slow moving, and it's kind of backward looking, right? But I think if, if there was more of it, um, in, in aggregate, companies would say, you know, it's really a disaster to have to go to court with the FTC. It's really bad for business. It's going to slow down my business. It's going to um, it, distract my executives and cost money. It's actually cheaper for me to do the right thing and care about my users' data. So I, I think it's just another I, I don't know if it's you know sort of analogous to our shaming, but it's another <laughs> it's another disincentive to to sort of doing the wrong thing. And so I, I think that the more disincentives we have to putting out insecure software, uh, insecure services, insecure hardware, um, that that helps us overall over time. It's kind of like when we were kids uh, if you won't eat your dinner the bad policeman will come and take you away yeah <laughs> here it's the FTC will take you to court <laughs> yeah so looking back over I mean your career from loft to the present present day uh, do you think that we as a society we improved in discussing software vulnerabilities and being in companies being open or are we like in the same uh, Uh, the same uh, uh, let's say the same ideas that uh, nobody needs to speak about it and companies don't respond did things get better over time um, things things have gotten has gotten a lot better um, especially when it comes to um, the, the big the big uh, software companies the big tech companies they're um, the vast majority um, gets it they they understand that To protect their brand they have to build things securely at the get-go and they also then also have to have good res- responsiveness um, they have to engage the community 
They have to treat, you know, vulnerability researchers as someone who's, you know, trying to help their customers, um, you know, and, and of course there's bug bounties that these people are actually getting, getting paid um, for what they do. So it's, it's, it's much, much, uh, it's much, much better um, than it was. But, you know, there's still, you know, tens of thousands of small software companies, whether they're SaaS, online companies, or delivering software um, that, that aren't, um, that aren't uh, writing secure software. So to some extent, it's sort of like death from a thousand cuts, right? It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not the main piece of software you use. It's not your operating system. It's not your browser, um, some of those core things. But there's, there's, there's probably something that's running on your computer or running on your company's business that is, is a gaping hole. <laughs> and attackers will just, just need to find it. So... You know, we, we, we see this, you know, every, you know, every day there's, you know, another online service has uh, has been found to have a vulnerability that's been exploited. Um, and so I think that's where the work is now. I, I think that, uh, and so that's that's a lot of it is making this easier, making it less expensive. Um, and it's because, so I, 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 we know how to make secure software, right? Um, uh, things like, you know, um, Windows 10, the Chrome browser, iOS, um, these things are very secure. We know it is because the, the, the cost of a vulnerability is very, very expensive, right? The cost of an exploit. So there, there can't be a lot of them. Um, so we know, you know, major, major companies that spend a lot of time and effort can, can make really robust, secure systems. The challenge is trickling that down, right? How do we make it, how do we make it cheaper? Uh, how do we make it uh, faster, easier for the average developer, the average person writing an online uh, website or something like that? And so that, I think that's the challenge now. And that, that's one of the things I work on at Vericode is making these tools really easy for the average developer to just make as part of their daily job, part of their workflow, and make security natural and, and easy. Well, we wish you great success. It's an important task. Uh, so one final question. Uh, we're coming back to Loft and you, you guys. Uh, in 2014, you had a kind of a reunion of the team. What's the relationship status now between you guys? So um, I would say it's, you know, it, it's mixed. Uh, you know, some of us get along with each other. Some of us are more distant from each other. Um, uh, you know, I think it over, you know, I think, it, you know, part of the whole at stake you know, breakup, you know, caused people to, um, you know, find jobs somewhere else. People moved away. Um, you know, I think uh, me and Silicosis uh, are the only ones who still live in the Boston area. Um, people are all over the West Coast and in, in, in the mid-Atlantic states, and we're, we're kind of geographically far away. So we only see each other really at cons. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, in general, we're, we're, we're fairly friendly. We communicate every once in a while, but it's just, it's not the same as, you know, really the tight knit working together group we, we, we used to, we used to be. Uh, as they say, the only constant thing is change. So everything changes, I guess. Yeah. It's hard for a group of people to keep doing something for 20 years. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult things. A lot of things don't last that long. And so, um, I, you know, the fact that we sort of had a good, you know, seven, eight years working together in the nineties, um, I thought, I think, you know, that was, that was pretty good.
I uh, really enjoyed it, and I think uh, we made a big impact. You certainly did. You became part of the Internet mythology, in a sense. Uh, Chris Wieshopper, thank you very, very much for this interview. Great pleasure. Very interesting. <laughs> and we oh, learned a lot. It was great to talk with you. Uh, thanks for having <laughs> me on your uh, thank, podcast. Thank you very, very much. Oh, my God. CK Music.